Well, welcome back to the Clear as Mud series. We're going to close this up today. How many of you guys were involved in the Fall Festival last night? Throw your hand up real quick. How many of you guys went to the Fall Festival last night? You can put your hand. Yeah. So how many of you are having a coma right now? It's like you barely got here. You're just glad you drug into church. It's kind of how I felt this morning. So thank you guys for being here. For all of you who did help out, uh, we're thanking God. It was an awesome, awesome event. We had Literally, people had to park up at the park. We had so many cars and stuff parked around here. It was a pretty incredible thing. So we're praising God for that this morning. But we are involved in here this series called uh, Clear as Mud. And we're talking about a specific situation about the gospel and how it was clarified. And yet then at the same time, through some various events in this book called the Book of Acts, that it looks like it was muddied. And today we're going to discuss a particular issue when we're trying to give the gospel to people. Uh, best for me when I was, uh, illustration for me was when I was back about six, maybe nine months ago, maybe even a year now, I was sitting at a BJ's with a friend of mine. Yeah, I've known him all my life. He was my best friend growing up, and we would connect occasionally um, over the last few years, continuing our conversation that began when I was, became a Christian my senior year of high school. And we would go off to a coffee shop in Yorba Linda, and he would drill me with every single question you could possibly think of because he had chosen the route of atheism and the route of agnosticism. And so as he was drilling me with whether, you know, how, how can penguins get down to, you know, off of Noah's Ark and get down to where they need to go to, you know, how, how does science work in this way and what what about, you know, God and, and evil and all this kind of stuff? I had to learn how to answer those questions. As we've been engaging over those years, we would address different questions. We'd talk about our lives, see what was going on. We'd talk about the gospel. We'd talk about his life and just our differences of opinion. And so we had been sitting for about an hour. We'd talk through our lives. And typically, this is a point where we start engaging because, you know, I'm a, I'm a pastor. So we start talking about Christ or we'll start talking about religion of some kind. And so we had just finished off our drinks, sitting there tanking, talking, eating. And next thing you know, he, he just looks at me and I'm like, hey, I got to use the restroom. He's like, fine, when you get back. Boom, he slaps his hand on the table. It's on. I'm like, oh, sweet. We're going to get into it this year. This is going to be an awesome conversation about, about Jesus and faith and, and what his new objections are. This is going to be great. He says, Trump, we need to talk about what you think. And I'm like, Trump? Seriously? You're going to bring up the president? And so, you know, I come back and we had, and I tried to steer the conversation back to the gospel. But to be quite honest, he was more interested in politics than he was in, in, the, in religion at this point. I don't know about you, if you've ran into this, you'll start engaging someone. You'll start talking towards the gospel and suddenly they're like, yeah, well, what about space aliens making the, you know, the pyramids and stuff? And you're like, why do I even care about this? And they try to distract you, to take you a different direction. Or maybe they're upset about something they know about that's in the Bible. Maybe they're concerned with some view of science that you should hold, but you don't. Or they think you hold. Or they're over global warming. You name it. There are lots of distractions out there. Anybody had that issue come up? We used to call them smoke screens. Yeah. And so they show up in our conversations about Christ. And what do we do with these is an important conversation. In fact, the ancient church had distractions to the gospel as well. And so in the section that we're going to look at today, Paul's going to give us a way to deal with these. And so we're going to start off in this section of Acts chapter 16. We're going to look through verses 1 through 5 today as we close up this series, Clear as Mud, to examine what it is that we have been called to do when it comes to people who want distractions. So go ahead, grab your Bibles, open them up there. If you don't have a Bible, they're available under your seats on page 924. 
And you can join with us right there in an app or wherever you are. If you're watching online, you know, pull it up at your home and you've got it with you. So we're looking at this book of the book of Acts. Now, for those of you who have not been with us in this series, this is a book that was written by a man named Luke. He was a physician who was asked by a Roman official to pen down the life of Jesus and the history of the church so far. So what we have is actually in this book that has been collected in the Bible. And again, the Bible is not one book. It's a collection of ancient manuscripts, and we have this scroll or this book written by Dr. Luke of the first 30 years of the church history. And so we are in the middle of it at a moment called the Council of Jerusalem. Uh, This big council has shown up, and they're having a debate, and the debate is over a distraction. On one side of the debate, they're asking, you know, when Gentiles, non-Jewish people become Christians, what do they do? And they said, do they need to be circumcised and follow the way of the Jewish people? That's how they become really Christian. On the other side, you had the guy saying, no, 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 no. They only need to receive Jesus, and that's going to be good. And then we'll talk about how they should live from there. And they came down with four ideas of how we should follow and what we should abstain from. And so these two were debating, and thank God, all the men again said amen, that they went away from the circumcision conversation, and they moved over to the, hey, just abstain from these four things. As we look at that, we realize that immediately this duo... Paul and Barnabas that were supposed to be sent out with a letter and a couple other guys get into a fight, not about the gospel, but about how to deliver the gospel. And so they go their separate directions. And now we pick up following Paul as Barnabas heads off to Cyprus and we're following him on his journey. So that's, that's kind of the recap of what we're looking at as we begin here in verse one. It says, now Paul also came also to Derby and to Lystra. We'll just pause right there. Because you're like, where in the world is Derby and Lystra? So here's a map. Uh, this is where Derby and Lystra is. If you look over on the far right, you see the coastline of the Mediterranean. Down would be Israel and Syria. And right at the border where Syria and modern-day Turkey would meet is a city called Antioch. Now, Antioch is the, the hotbed. It's the big church of non-Jewish people have, that has been growing in the area. And so they are sending out missionaries. This is where Paul and Barnabas and a bunch of other guys are ministering and where Paul and and Silas are going to take off on their journey. They're going to head up north into that small area of Tarsus. This is Paul's hometown where he grew up. And so this is where he was born anyway before he went down into Jerusalem. And so they will then hike north and they will travel over what's called the Taurus Mountains down into this town called Derby and Lystra and Iconium. They've been to these towns before. This is where they had been earlier as a duo and planted churches, nearly been killed, all kinds of stuff had happened, and now they're going back to these churches to strengthen them and to say, hey guys, here's what we found out about whether you have to be circumcised or not. The answer is no. And so they're going to bring this information to them. And so it continues. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium, and Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. Now, we pause here because Timothy right now, I just want to point out, this guy's a stud. I mean, this guy is probably 16, 17, maybe 18 years old. I mean, this is a young guy because he'll still be young several years later when Paul's writing to him saying, hey, don't let people look down on your youth. This is probably, he's probably a teenager of some kind, and he's excellent with the word of God. So if you're, in, if you're in your teens in here, sometimes we have teenagers in this service. Guys, don't think that God can't use you to deliver the word of God. God can't use you with your knowledge of the word of God to impact and empower people. 
Timothy was one of these guys. In fact, he was well spoken of by his brothers at Lystra. He had a grandmother, and uh, he had Lois and Eunice, his grandmother and his mother, who were over him in his home and over his life, had taught him the Jewish scriptures. So that when Paul probably came in and he'd received Christ, boom, now he got it. Now he was ready. He was engaged, and he was ready to preach. Now, he, Paul shows up in town. They say, hey, have you checked out this Timothy kid? He's, he's pretty good. You need to take him with you. And so Paul goes, connects with him and says, hey, let, let's, let's check you out. Let's get you going. He realizes this guy could be my next John Mark, my next guy I'm going to disciple and bring up. In fact, he will become Paul's protege. But there's a problem in the text. There's a problem going on here. And that is simply this. Timothy isn't circumcised. Dum, 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 right? It's like, why, why do we care? Didn't we just find out that you don't have to be circumcised? So by the way, this is the most I've ever said circumcised in one time in the history of my life. So uh, somebody was telling me last service, I've never heard it so many times. So the, um, look, this is, this is the situation. You don't have to be circumcised, and yet Timothy is going to be. In fact, Paul will take him, it says. He took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. What in the world is going on here? This is clear as mud. You don't have to circumcise the non-Jewish people. Well, here's a guy who's grown up Greek. Well, apparently he doesn't have to, but here's the issue. It's a little bit of background knowledge that'll help you out. In the Jewish world, there was a time where all the Jewish people lived in that one central place of Israel. Now, in comes a big bad king named Nebuchadnezzar. He wipes out the Jewish lands, spreads them all over the place, and they end up dispersing throughout all the Roman Empire and everywhere else. When they do that, they end up looking around, and at some point, they go, there's not enough Jewish guys to get married to, and so they end up having to get married to non-Jewish people. Now, that was against the law. But they understood the situation, and so there were some new kind of laws. There were interpretations that were drawn out, and they were called the Mishnah. And in the Mishnah, it says that if this happens, it's not, as, it's not as much as it's illegitimate. It's not so much that this is a broken marriage. But what we're going to do is we're going to claim that the child born will be, we'll figure out who had his lineages by the mother. In other words, we're going to keep him Jewish. And so Timothy, in the mind of the Jewish people, was, is he, was Jewish, right? He's Jewish. He's supposed to be living a Jewish life. He was raised by his mother and his grandmother. And so if you were living in the home where a young boy would until it was time for him to go work with his father, he would have been trained under all the Jewish teaching. But his father apparently had such a strength that he never allowed his son to be circumcised. At which point, as Timothy has gotten older, he, his father likely has died, it looks like. He himself has decided, I ain't getting circumcised. And I think I can understand why at this point, can't you? He's a teenager. He's going like, no way I'm going to do this. But Paul is looking at this, and Paul has a cultural awareness. Paul is so keen on understanding what his culture looks like and how his culture works that he goes, you know what, this is going to be an issue. Imagine taking Timothy into these other towns where these other Jewish men are standing there, and he stands them up to let him preach the gospel. And they're like, we know that kid. He ain't circumcised. I don't know how they would know that, by the way. I mean, it's like, that is a mystery in the Bible I don't understand, but, and I don't want to know. Anyway, so they, they got the, they, but, but they would know. They'd say, this guy's son, he's the son of a Greek man. He's not circumcised. We're not listening to him. Are you telling us, Paul, now that you don't have to be circumcised if you're Jewish? Because he's Jewish and he's not circumcised. What do you do? And suddenly you notice there'd be this big distraction. They'd never get to the gospel. It'd be a big argument over circumcision all over again. 
And so Paul sees this. He understands this. He knows where he's going. He gets his culture that he's going to be preaching to. And so he says, you know what? We're going to deal with this. And he has Timothy circumcised to drop the distraction. Today, guys, like I pointed out at the beginning, there are lots of distractions, isn't there? Lots of distractions to the gospel, be them political distractions, be them distractions over sexuality, be them distractions over, uh, I don't know, the way we do music, the way we do church, the way some churches do things. You know, There's all these ways to get in the way of people hearing the gospel because they just go, nah, this is ridiculous. Why do you do that? What's this all about? Why do you guys believe that? I mean, it gets down to even hats. Hats? Yes, hats. Some, of you, some people keep taking their hats off when I get to this point in the message. And, but here's, Jared used to work at another church, and what was interesting is when he was a volunteer, he could wear a hat anytime he wanted. He'd walk around wearing a hat, he'd talk to people, he'd pray over people, he'd wear his hat, no big deal. But when he became on staff and he was starting to stand on the stage, they told him, listen, no hats. And they're like, what? That seems like an arbitrary law. Why draw on this weird law, no hats suddenly? I don't wear hats all the other times. What's going on here? And they said, look, if you want to have influence with our congregation, you can't wear a hat on stage. Because they had a congregation and a culture in which wearing a hat was still considered, you know, kind of offensive. If you're going to talk to God, you need to be respectful, take your hat off. So it was just like, they said, no hats. We just don't want to worry about this. We don't want the distraction, see? The same thing is true in a lot of different areas that we need to be alert for. We need to be culturally aware. And the question for you and for me is, are we culturally aware of the distractions that we create? Are we culturally aware of the things that we're putting in front of the gospel that become issues that we don't want to be issues? We just don't want to deal with that. So let's set that aside so we can get to the gospel. Are we aware of the things that we may be producing in our various ways? Like, I think about it this way. In Corona today, uh, Corona is roughly, I think it's uh, 64%, 50 to 64% Hispanic. And then there's, and then it's white, and then it's the other minorities that roll down from there in the percentages of Corona. Corona is predominantly Hispanic. And yet when I talk to my Hispanic friends, or I'll talk to my black friends, or I'll talk to um, my, even my Asian friends, we'll talk about church, man, you realize, wow, I am culturally unaware of how many distractions we produce as a church that is more predominantly white than we are uh, anything else. And because when I talk to my black friends, they will tell me, man, church is supposed to be exciting. It's supposed to be energetic. It's supposed to be interactive. Uh, last night, we have, a, we have a group of my friends that will they'll amen. They'll, they'll shout out. They'll do it. I encourage them because I want them to feel at home in, the, in their church. And so we, they will engage. But, man, you talk to Hispanics, they're like, yeah, it's energetic. It, it's different. It's, there is a little bit of the amening. We like, to, we like to interact. We like to involve ourselves. It's, you know, you don't talk so high and talk about Greek. You just kind of lay the cookies on the bottom shelf kind of stuff. And then you got white churches, and we're like, yep, yeah, you know, whatever. It could be anything from, yeah, we like to clap on one and three to, you know, I am German. You're not talking to me about nothing. You know, that's, that's kind of the range we go to. And then you've got like the Asian churches. I have some Asian friends that go to like some real serious Korean churches. If you don't show up with your notebook, ready with a pen, ensuring that you're gonna take the Greek class afterwards, you aren't a Christian. You know, it's that kind of a level. And what we look at here is a vast majority of differences that some people show up to church and they have to go, ah, can we be here? Can we, can we, can we experience God in this culture? Are we distracted? Not so much can I be here, can I bring my friends? 
Can I bring my friends so that they would listen, they would engage, they would be a part of it? And that's a good question for us as Olive Branch. Are we willing to look at the distractions we're creating ethnically? Because if we're going to reach the 200 plus thousand people around us, we may have to make some adjustments. We may need to bring some distractions down so that the gospel can roll through. We may need to preach and have a service in Spanish. We may need to think about what does that mean? What does that look like? Because it won't look the same. And we need to be ready for that. You know, there are other distractions. We come up with theological distractions all the time. Now, I don't believe we should change theology. Hear me out. You don't change theology. You change your methodologies of reaching people. But there are some bad things that we believe that aren't theology. For example, there are some people out there who will literally tell you, if you have homosexual feelings, you need to rid those and have heterosexual feelings before you can become a Christian. Now, somehow that's a hindrance because that's a permanent sin in your life. And I just want to press the time out button and look at some of those guys and say, do you not understand? It says, no temptation has come unto man that's, that isn't common to us all, right? There's no temptation that's not common to every single human being. Guess what? They're going to struggle with this. Christ is going to come into their life, and he's going to come to them where they are, but he's not going to leave them where they are, just like he didn't leave me alone either. Amen? All of us will have desires we lay at the cross. All of us will have things that we love that we have to lay behind. All of us are going to have to be changed by the Holy Spirit. And so we need to sometimes just stop and pause and go, we need to get to the gospel. We need to set these distractions aside. You know, I know you want to argue about this. Let's just talk about where you're at with God. Sometimes we'll even put discipleship things before outreach. I mean, I think about this one a lot, actually, as a church. Uh, the other, uh, about a, oh, a couple weeks ago, I got to go to Disneyland with my family. It was kind of cool. Walking around, one of my cousins was coming from North Carolina. And um, we were just hanging out, and one of my cousins actually smokes. And so what was interesting is Disneyland has become pharisaical about smoking completely. You cannot smoke anywhere on campus. There are no smoking areas. In fact, you walk up to a security guard, and you say, hey, um, I, if I got to smoke, where do I go? They go, to the street. The staff members who work, they call it the walk of shame. They have to walk all the way out through the whole of Disneyland, the back lots and everything, to the street where they can take a smoke. And this is just what they've said, nothing on campus, period. Now, that's Disneyland. They have the right to do whatever they want to do. But you know, I know there are people in our church who feel ashamed, so ashamed that they smoke, they hide in the back, smoke, come back to serve. There are some people who literally can't make it through the service, and so they're not going to come to church that they feel like, hey, I can't. You know, smoking, you guys are against smoking. I can't smoke, you know, blah, blah, blah. Time out for one second. I just want to point something out. While smoking is, yes, it has drug effects and things with nicotine and stuff like that and can be addictive, and I get all that, there is a real sense that smoking is not the sin we make it out to be. And there's not like, thou shalt not smoke involved in the scriptures. Although I think our culture wants there to be really bad. I think there's something that we can kind of be like, hey, we know this is a habit. We know that's not healthy for you. We know that you should stop. And yeah, the ultimate thing is that you would be redeemed and you wouldn't, nothing would control you. The last time I checked, we're having caffeine addictions hand out every Sunday morning here at church. Isn't that enjoyable? I wonder if, not, not that I want to have cigarettes handed out at the, at, the, at the coffee spot. That's not what I'm saying. But, but I really wonder, shouldn't we, is there not a place for churches to have smoking sections for people? I mean, not in the service, like in the room, but I'm talking about like outside. 
where they can go somewhere where they don't have to feel ashamed. They can still engage with people. They can still have conversations. You can invite your friends who smoke. You don't have to fear that somehow they're going to feel ashamed. That somehow now they can't hear the gospel because they have a habit? Because they cuss? We're going to tell them, you can't cuss on campus. You know what? Some people just can't control the cussing that comes out of their mouth before they have Jesus in their life to give them the chance. And we got to watch when we put discipleship as a distraction in front of the gospel. We've got to empower and enable the gospel to be the gospel, that Jesus transform people's lives. And so we need to be culturally aware. What is it we are doing that's causing distraction? And let's be aware of these things so that we can engage these things appropriately, not changing our theology, but changing our methodology appropriately so that we, they will not be distracted from the gospel. And that's our goal. That's our aim. So how do we become culturally aware? Number one, I think on the theological stuff, guys, we just need to be better at knowing the Bible and knowing our theology. We need to be better at answering questions. And here, if you don't know how to answer the question, if somebody's like, yeah, well, how do you understand the age of the earth and dinosaurs and blah, blah, blah? Here's your answer. Write this down. It's very simple. I don't know, period. Let's find out together. That's how you follow that up. I don't know. I never thought about it, or I've tried. Let's find out together. And you invite them in the journey of discovering the answer because the answers exist. When someone throws a smoke screen up, you knock it down with, that's a good question. Hey, let's figure this out together. Let's, you know, let's hang out again. But let's talk about this real quick. And we need to be able to move on those. The second way that you understand and are aware of cultural things that are distractions is make friends with people who are different from you. Make friends with people who are a different ethnicity. Make friends with people who are of a different socioeconomic group. Make friends with your eight neighbors that are surrounding you that don't know Jesus, right? I mean, that's a simple place to start. Know your neighbors. Because a lot of your neighbors are unlike you. Even though we think they should be because they should have the same exact lawn with the same green colors and the same painting, and we have our palettes and our HOAs and all that. So I get that. But we need to know our neighbors. We need to engage our neighbors, have them in our house, have, have those opportunities when appropriate to really begin to build those conversations out. And so we, my whole point is here that we need to deal with distractions ahead of time. Paul and, Paul and Timothy dealt with the distraction before they went to the cities. They didn't show up in the cities. It's like, that kid's not starting. Well, we're dealing with that. Oh, he's, he's almost there. We got the date set. It's just the, the HMO is keeping us back a little while. You know, that's not, they dealt with it before they ever took off. <clears throat> and what we have here then is Paul's philosophy of dealing with distractions as quickly and as soon as possible. Notice his terms in 1 Corinthians that he gives us. He says, for though I am free from all, Paul is writing to a church in Corinth. He says, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. Hey, I'm free to live in these ways, but you know, I'm gonna serve these people. I'm gonna put myself under them. I'm gonna make myself a slave to them in the sense that I wanna win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To the to those under the law, I became as under, one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. So I'm not gonna sin that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. Now that is a missionary mindset. 
that by all means I might save some. Now, I'm going to do everything I can, but I'm not going to sin in order to reach these people. I'm going to put myself in every situation. I will wear the clothing they wear. I will walk in the streets that they walk. I will do what I need to do in order to reach them so they can hear the gospel. Now, note this. The gospel is not the distraction. The gospel is the goal. There are a lot of people today who feel like they can't give the gospel. It's too offensive. I might hurt my friend's feelings. It's, you know, I just really, that is the point. To remove all of these things is not so they like you. It's not so that they want to be with you. It's so that they can hear the gospel. Now, we need to love our neighbors. That's a different conversation. But when we're talking about evangelism, guys, we need to reach people with the gospel. And we need to have a cultural mindset in this post-Christian age to do that. And by the way, the, the data's in just recently, just last week. There's this big study, and basically it has shown that you and I live in a post-Christian nation. Welcome to missions life. Because there is vast majority of people who don't believe in Christ more than we do. And that means now we don't get to tell them how to change when they come in the door. We need to step towards them like missionaries do in order to bring about an understanding of the gospel. We have stepped into the mission life. And it's time for us to start living that mission life with an awareness that we would do anything we can but sin in order to reach people for Jesus. They have the cultural majority. And so we need to engage appropriately. Now, I think we've seen a lot of this over the years, right? When you start thinking about this, we've put a lot of these distractions away. There was a time in which music was, was hymns and organs and all this stuff. Now it's more rock, and some churches are moving towards, like, dance beats. I mean, it just shifts. Music has changed. And that's been because we're trying to connect with that generation that's in front of us, that group of people that we're surrounded by. There have been a shift in the way that we present messages from large pulpits from flying pulpits to everything that you can imagine, and it shifted. And what we see is this development from dressing up to dressing down in some places, going back to up, and it just moves. But we need to be culturally aware of what we're looking at. And I think the, that, the whole story of Chuck Smith, to me, makes the most sense. Back when he was originally beginning his journey, as he was preaching at Calvary Chapel, in came a bunch of hippies. They got interested in hearing about Jesus. The Jesus movement was afloat and hippies are coming in the door and they're sitting around and they're, they smell and they're, they're dirty and all those old people in that, in that original Calvary Chapel, they looked and they said, they're messing up our carpets. We need to tell these guys to get out of there, dress appropriately, da-da-da-da-da. You know what Chuck Smith's answer was? He tore the carpet out because he wanted people to come in and hear the gospel. He didn't want them to worry about the distraction of the carpet and all this other stuff. It was gospel-focused, and the other distractions were set aside. Remember, we're talking about a triage here in that, that original conversation. You have the gospel, and then there's these essential things. You do not leave these, or you abandon the gospel. The second level, though, is, hey, we may debate about how to deliver the gospel, but we're all on the same team. On a third level, it's just stuff we shouldn't, we, we can talk about, but we shouldn't divide or care about the color of the carpet, whether it's a pew or whether it's chairs. I mean, amen, we got chairs, right? Who really loved pews anyway? Let's be honest, wooden seats? Ouch. I mean, who, who I'm so happy for a microphone because I don't have to yell and sound like I'm a crazy man all the time. Do you hear what I, you know, it's like, come on. 
You know, we're, so long ago, we used to have this hand that would show up with a shadow and flip over the lyrics for you when they were, you know, projected up. Or you had to have a book, right? Do you remember all the projection stuff? And it was always upside down, and then it would be the wrong way. And it was just like you were trying to interpret, what are we singing? This is the wrong, you know, wrong song or the whole song. Anyway, weird stuff. Now we got, you know, projectors and things like that. And we go, oh, I hate how technology is incredible. No, it's just welcome to the reality of living in the United States. We want to reach people for Christ in the U.S., you're going to have to do it online a lot of times, which means we got to move towards podcasting and video and stuff like that because that's what it takes. See, we want to deal with the distractions ahead of time because when we do deal with the distractions, they can produce opportunity. So Paul and, Barn- Paul and, Paul and Silas and Timothy, they all head out. They go to the next city, and as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for the observance of the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were with them in Jerusalem. Now, see what he's saying here. He says, they went to these cities and they delivered the for observance. That means they gave them the letter. Yes, yes, you don't have to be circumcised. Yes, you don't have to be Jewish. Here's these four things we're asking you to abstain from. And this is the, what they decided. And this dropped the boundary. This dropped the distraction. There was a whole issue about whether we should be circumcised. Gone. Now everybody can begin to hear the gospel. They moved it and an opportunity was born. People were ready to listen. All of these God-fearers who had never joined the Jewish tradition were because they had to get circumcised were now going like, you know, I can be Jew. I can, I can join and be under the Jewish way and God and he's gonna accept, I'm in. Opportunity, born. Also, when we adopt these distractions, opportunity is born here at our church. Saturday nights was one of those reasons. We, we saw there was this major distraction called work and sports that was causing people not to make it to church. You'd invite your friends and they'd be like, ah, I got kids, my kids got some kind of sports tournament on Sunday, we can't make it, sorry. Or, you know, I gotta work on Sunday and I can't really make it. So we launched our Saturday service in hopes to give aid to people who worked on the Saturday or worked on the Sundays or had kids in tournaments on, on those days. And third, we found out it had another awesome, awesome ability. And if you're trying to engage with your non-churched friends, this is helpful to remember we have Saturday nights. Why? Because you know what your non-church friends wants to do on Sunday? Say it, you know what it is. Sleep in, right? They want to sleep in and they want to watch football or they want to watch their sport that's on on that Sunday morning. And some of you guys are going, hurry it up, I wanted to. So the... But the reason we did the Saturdays was because, guess what? You can invite a non-Christian friend to check out what church is like. You can invite a non-church person to check out church, and they don't have to worry about losing their sleep on Sunday, and they don't have to worry about watching their, missing out on their football game. And so they come, and they hang out, and then you say, and plus, we can go to dinner afterwards. We can talk about what we learned or what, what, what it's about. You can ask questions. And we have found that has opened the opportunity of inviting people to church far greater because it becomes a time to go hang out. It becomes something bigger than that. This is, how I, this is how taking down a distraction can produce an opportunity. Taking down a barrier can produce new opportunities to reaching people for Christ. But it also produces new influence. And think about Timothy for a minute. Timothy's been raised in a Jewish home, but under a Greek father, and now he is not circumcised, and he's a teenager, and he's been looked at by his mother and looked at by the Jewish leadership, and they're all like, be circumcised. He's like, nope, I'm a teenager. I'm gonna use my rebellion right here and right now. Not gonna do it. But suddenly Paul shows up and says, hey, you really wanna reach people for Jesus? Yes, I do. All right. 
you're going to need to get this taken care of. Because the Jewish people, it's going to be a distraction. He goes, okay. Now imagine this kid shows up. And he starts preaching to these Jewish crowds in these towns. And they start going, that's that kid born of a Greek guy. He's not circumcised. And he goes, yes, I am. Now, I don't know how they figure this out. Again, (laughs) don't want to know either. But basically, he's able to say, yes, I am. And they're just all going like, whoa. You know why? Because their Jewish leadership couldn't get it done. But when he becomes Jesus, he becomes even more Jewish. When he follows Jesus, he's more Jewish than ever. And now he has influence with these Jewish people. Who's this Jesus that takes this Greek kid and makes him more Jewish than ever? Who's this guy? Yet he can still speak to the Greeks. He understands the Greeks. The guy's got influence. The same thing is true in so many scenarios. I have a friend who used to never drink alcohol, wouldn't touch it, just just kind of raised that way and didn't want to go near it. And one day he discovered that when he sat down with his friends, um, the door was kind of closed because they'd all want to, you know, drink and talk together. And he would just kind of excuse himself and disappear. After talking to his wife and stuff, finally one day he sat down and yeah, he actually opened a beer and offered one to the other guys. And they were just like, oh, hey. And suddenly, boom, opportunity to talk about Jesus opened up all over the place. He was keep, what once was a distraction, how can you be a Christian and drink, had become a feeling they thought he was, they thought he was judging him. And no amount of words were going to cover that. No, he wasn't getting drunk. And he doesn't get drunk. But it opened the door for him. Now, if you have alcoholic problems, no, don't do that. You know, if you can't, like, I can't handle Instagram, so I don't, have, I don't go out on Instagram to promote the church and stuff. There are places you have to draw your own line, but know your cultural awareness. And there may be a place where you need to set something down that was, in a sense, sacred to you because you grew up with it or whatever, but suddenly it opened a door and he stepped in and boom. There was all kinds of conversations that erupted around Christ. I think of also the the fact that there have been many people who have left the LGBTQ plus lifestyle. And as they've come out of it, either being raised in it like Clayton or Caleb Claytonbach, or whether it's Kim Zimber who lived in it, or Christopher Yan who is now a professor at a Christian college. These people have stepped into the LGBT community from their perspective as pastors, ministry leaders, and professors, and are seeing huge amounts of traction as they're helping the church understand the issue better, and they're bringing many of those people to Christ. Because they have influence. I know there. I've been to the parades. I've had stuff thrown at me. Da-da-da. And, and if you need some information on that, read Caleb's book, Messy Grace. It's an excellent material that can help you understand how you put grace and truth together in some of these outreach areas that can be so difficult. Because it is a bit unnerving. But we need to deal with these distractions. And here's the problem. Here's why it's unnerving. Because when you deal with the distractions, it will cost us. It costs you. Let's face it, it cost Timothy, didn't it? He had to go through a pretty huge turmoil deal. In the same way, it will cost you and it will cost me when we decide to finally drop a boundary. It cost some of you when years ago, churches stopped doing hymns, songs you loved, songs you enjoyed, songs you grew up with, songs that attached you to generations of Christians because young people came into the church heard those songs, and turned around and walked out then. This place is stuffy, old, and doesn't even understand. And the church had to adjust. It wasn't sin to adjust our cultural music, although we felt like it was. 
It wasn't sin to change the way that we were dressing in order to engage and bring the gospel because this was distracting people from hearing the message. And a lot of churches have allowed those distractions to build up and build up and build up. And what's interesting is some of those things that used to be distractions, they changed quickly. Churches got into doing secular music from stages, like playing a secular song to open church or whatever. And people loved it and they'd come in and listen. All, the, all, the, all of the evidence right now is that the youngest generation doesn't like that. When they come to church, they want to hear, they want to come to a church and they're confused now. And so most churches are stopping that process. Where once it was helping, now it's hindering. And so we need to be culturally aware of how things move. Yeah, guys, that means we need to have lots of relationships with lots of people who are not Christians. That means we have to have a lot of engagement and a lot of mind to say, how, what is holding you back from hearing this? We want to help you get there. We'll do whatever we can, but we will not sin in order to deliver you the gospel. And that's the call. Because guess what? That's what Jesus did for us. He showed up. He bore the cost on himself. He did not ask us to bear the cost of our sin. He sat on that cross. He hung there, taking the wrath, taking the pain, taking the suffering so that you and I would not have to. And he exampled for you and for me that opportunity to bear, to bear the sin, to bear the cost of what it means to bring the gospel. I mean, Jesus even came down from heaven, for goodness sakes. Abandoned the riches of heaven to step onto this mud-soaked earth in order to love us. He's our example. And yes, there will be things that we have to, that will be a cost to us. We will say goodbye to some of our friends as they go and, and start a venue down in the valley. But it's for the sake of the gospel. We may get to that place as some churches have where, yeah, because there's so many, so many things going on that sometimes we got to listen to the teaching from a video, even though there's somebody who cares about us. And we're like, I don't like that. And yet they're the fastest growing places. People are coming to churches and they're being introduced to Jesus from these places because it drops a distraction of a pastor having to write a sermon every week. And one guy gets to minister to a body of people. It takes a lot of hours to put a sermon together. They don't get a lot of time then to engage with everybody to make sure everybody's running. And it's, it's created an ability for the teacher to be a good, better teacher and the leaders to be better leaders. And it's enabled ministry to grow in a lot of places. But yeah, it's gonna cost us a little bit at times. We get uncomfortable with cost, and I get that. I'm not saying that's exactly how everything will work out. But we need to be ready for what kind of things will need to be adjusted as we try to reach into this, into this city. Because... It should cost us. The reason I get excited about that is because when Paul goes through this and he works this out and the, and the Jerusalem church does this and they clarify so the gospel can be heard, here's the conclusion of the entire section. So the churches were strengthened in the faith. Not just the ones they were at, all the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. When we drop the distractions, the gospel is heard and when the gospel is heard, it's able to be received and when it was received, the church grew in strength, it grew in discipleship, it grew in outreach, and that's exactly what we need in our city, amen? And so, yeah, it may cost us, but let's do whatever we can. We will not sin, but we'll do whatever we can to reach people for Jesus Christ. And here's why. Because you may be here today listening to this going like, wow, this message is really distracting. You guys really think that you gotta drop all this stuff just so I can, yeah, 
you've heard a lot of distractions, and the reason I'm bringing this up is because we really do care that you hear that God loves you. We really do care that you hear that he loved you so much. Not only did he want you here and make you, but even when we were in rebellion and sin, he loved you. He's been patient with you. He hasn't condemned you and destroyed you. But in the meantime, as we continue in our lives, we keep building up this register of sin. The list gets longer. It gets piled and piled and piled. And yet God determined not to condemn us right now. Instead, he sent his son Jesus to bear that weight of sin and mess on himself. And he made what's called the great exchange. He says, listen, I will take all your sin and I will give you all my goodness. And when you receive Jesus, he bears your sin away on the cross and he gives you all of his goodness, all his purity, all his perfection. So when God looks at you on the judgment day, he doesn't see your pile of sin. He sees Jesus. And when he sees that, he accepts you in and he walks you into eternity. Not only that, on earth, when he sees you, he dwells with you because the sin is dealt with. Maybe you think, oh, God doesn't even exist. Maybe it's because you haven't experienced him. And maybe because you haven't experienced him is because of your sin. But when Jesus removes that sin, God comes flooding into your life. The word of God comes to life. He transforms who you are. And maybe today what you need to do is deal with that mess. Well, how many good works do I have to do? Zero. It's not about being any better. It's not being any worse. It's about receiving a gift. And you got a gift when you were a kid. What'd you have to do to earn it? I hope nothing. I hope you just received that gift on Christmas. You received that gift on your birthday because I wanted to give it to you. God just wants to give you this gift. He loves you. And that gift is the forgiveness of sins on the cross. And now it's there for you to receive. I want to give you a chance to do that today. Would you bow your heads with me? <coughs> I don't know how many different ways I, I can try to remove distractions, but I want you to know that right now that God has given you this chance. It's a choice of receiving it or not, or rejecting it. He offers you forgiveness of sins. He offers you his presence. He offers you life. That is his gift in Jesus. And if you would like to receive it, I'd like to give you a chance right now just by praying this. Just go, God in heaven, I know that I've sinned. I know it offends you. But I know that you love me. I ask that you'd forgive me of my sins. I trust that Jesus took them on the cross and that he rose from the dead to give me all of his goodness. Now with my sin removed, I ask that you'd come into my life. Would you walk with me through it and lead me all the way home to heaven. I trust you in Jesus' name.